Robert McChesney is a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Illinois and is the author of several books including The Problem of the Media and Dollarocracy. This is Robert McChesney. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Um, great. I'm here with uh, Robert McChesney. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Uh, so I read the article that you had sent me. Uh, in which you talk about the, the U.S. being considered by uh, you know, people who evaluate these things, political scientists, et cetera, uh, to be a, a backsliding democracy along the lines of Poland or Hungary. Um, and you note that a huge problem with this is the media. And you identified the lack of local media as being a huge part of the problem in the, the rise of conspiracy theories, um, sometimes called misinformation, etc. Um, I'm probably too young to remember when local journalism had uh, such a big influence, but please pitch me and the listeners um, on what you're calling uh, the local journalism initiative. Uh, what is it? Why is it a solution? Well, the local journalism initiative is a plan to basically recreate uh, competitive, independent, uncensored uh, local journalism by and for people in their communities, a diverse uh, and competitive system. Uh, but to get there, I think I have to back up for not just for people in your generation, but for all people and talk about the uh, reason why this needs to be done. What is the problem it attempts to solve? And the problem is that the United States from the very beginning has been, its democratic system was founded on the idea of local journalism, founded on the idea that people living in communities would be able to uh, produce media easily and share it and consume it easily and have competitive voices, uh, even in small towns that this would be the case. And this was the case in most of the United States um, certainly through the 19th century, well into the 20th century, uh, if you went to even a smaller town, I don't know where you're from originally, Duncan, what's your hometown? Chicago. Oh, well, you're from a big city. You're not from yeah. a hometown. Well, a city like Chicago probably had two dozen daily newspapers 125 years ago. Several would be foreign language. Newspapers would come and go, highly competitive industry. And most people read more than one or two even. Uh, so there's a whole political culture and social culture built with local news media from the beginning of this country uh, that were essential to getting people drawing, not just give them news and information as consumers or as voters, but rather draw them into public life to understand what was going on in the world, what was going on in the community, how it mattered to them, make them understand what an issue was. And the papers or the news, newspapers in those days would generally take a position, an argument, and try to convince you of their position. And you'd have a whole array of different voices and people could start new newspapers easily if they didn't like the existing range of options, be it in Chicago or a small town. And so this was really the foundation of American democracy. Uh, and newspapers were political institutions. There's not a single um, progressive social movement that's advanced democracy in this country that wasn't based on newspapers. The abolitionist movement was a newspaper driven movement. Frederick Douglass was an, was an editor. Um, the suffragette movement, newspaper-led movement, the populist newspaper-led movement, labor union uh, and socialist movements in the late 19th and 20th century, 
newspaper-led movements. These newspapers are the way people communicated with each other about politics and life. And then in communities and communities across the country, you had people in their own town would learn about their community, their neighbors, what was going on, the issues through newspapers. So it was the foundation. And um, it was a huge part of our economy. Uh, as recently as 1960, 1% of the American GDP was accounted for by local daily newspapers. To give some sense of what 1% of the local GDP of the GDP meant, means, today, if newspapers, daily, local daily newspapers accounted for 1% of the GDP, the entire output of the country, that would be about $330 billion industry, 330 billion. Instead, it's less than 20 billion. So that's the drop off we've had in resources. Uh, in most places in the United States today, there is no local news media or there's very little, there's really not competing local news media. And whatever does exist is, is just shrinking by the day, uh, circling the drain and about to go under. And this is the crisis. Um, this is the great crisis. We once had the foundation of our politics and of our social life and culture was this rich media environment. Uh, and now it's gone, it's disappeared. And what are we left with? Well, what we're left with is what we have around us. Uh, uh, the spectacular eruption of crackpot conspiracy theories, of uh, nonsense, of, um, for lack of a, a better term, fascist politics, all emerging <laughs> in conjunction with this. Uh, stuff that probably would have been shot down pretty early in the in the game in previous eras, but now we're thriving, and um, you know that's sort of a problem. That's, you know, I think it's safe to say right now, uh, the United States is probably the most despondent. Now, part of that's probably coming from COVID uh, and the pandemic and everyone being you know locked up for the last two years, but I think just politically. Um, the pessimism and despondency in the country today is greater than any in my lifetime. And um, a lot of that is that people feel powerless. And the, a lot of the reason people feel powerless is they don't feel connected to other people and there's not an information network to draw them in. At one time, uh, probably when you, before you were born or when you were very young, people actually believed the internet would solve the problem. That the internet would give people a chance to go online and communicate with each other and they wouldn't need the traditional media or any media at all. They just have direct one-to-one -one or one-to-many and many-to-one communication. And it would be completely controlled by the user. and We'd all live happily ever after. Uh, in the 1990s, a lot of people got rich selling that argument. Uh, no one, no one got, went broke selling it or no one got fired for arguing that or called or insulted. Um, unfortunately, that wonderful fairy tale never came true and isn't true. Uh, and the reason it didn't come true is that doing journalism, doing media costs money. It requires uh, people who do it full time. It requires people who are accountable in order to get their paycheck for doing something. And the problem with the internet will set us free argument was that in the absence of that type of journalism, or that type of news media that uh, then individuals who use the internet to comment on and discuss and participate in, in the absence of actual paid legitimate journalism newsrooms, people doing it, what you end up with is that people can't make money doing it, who are just, you know, in their basement shooting off their mouths, hurling out insults. They're not really doing anything. There's not anyone actually covering communities 
uh, unless they feel like doing it for free for someone. And that, that's no way, that's no way to uh, run a free society. We wouldn't let make our teachers be volunteers who just want to come in and teach, even if they have absolutely no experience uh, whatsoever, and we don't know their motives. And just say, yeah, go ahead and teach my kids. We wouldn't uh, say, oh yeah, who wants to fly the plane today? And some dude raises his hand and says, I've never done it, but give me a shot. You know, you simply have, if you want to have a serious about journalism, you've got to have resources to pay for it. You've got to have a system that creates it. And that's what we lack. Uh, and that's what the local journalism initiative attempts to um, do. Now, there are two questions that emerge from this, Duncan. It's a long answer to your question, but it's no. a question to recite the paper. Uh, there are two questions that emerge. First of all, um, isn't this anti-American, the idea of, this, of intervening and having the government play a role uh, and have public money support journalism, which is what we call for? Isn't this go against everything this country stands for? Doesn't this go against everything any free society would have? Doesn't that inexorably lead to darkness at noon and George Orwell's worst nightmare? Isn't that the pathway to hell? That's the logical question people ask. And the answers to all those questions are no, 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 and no. None of that is true. In fact, if you actually study American history, which I've done for a living for the last 40 years, and research this, it doesn't take long till you realize that newspaper publishing wasn't very profitable. It wasn't a market capitalist industry in, in the modern sense of the term uh, for the first several generations of American history. And there was no one who thought you could just make money. When the free First Amendment of the Constitution was written, it wasn't like, which calls for freedom of the press and government should not uh, make a law interfering with the freedom of the press. It, it does not, um, there's no thought that all we have to do is turn over newspaper publishing to people trying to make money, to publishers, to people who want to become more profitable and the problem will be solved. The exact opposite is the case. In fact, the framers, all of them, to a person, of the Constitution and the first uh, generation or two of, in American history, not longer, were convinced that you had to have ample public subsidies to even have a news media, to have newspapers, local daily newspapers. And so in effect, starting with the Constitution where they created the post office, the federal government began subsidizing newspaper distribution from the get-go, basically distributing almost all newspapers for free or for a nominal amount because uh, they wanted to encourage the growth and distribution of newspapers. They wanted to make it easy for anyone to start a newspaper who wanted to communicate in their community. They wanted to open up the channels of communication. And uh, the history of this is rich, it's exciting, it's extraordinary. Um, the, the post office, 95% of the traffic, weighted traffic it sent in the first 100 years of its history was newspapers. That's basically what it did. It was the newspaper distribu distribution branch of every local newspaper in the country for 100 years. Newspapers in major cities would oftentimes deliver the mail two or three times a day, sometimes seven days a week. And those newspapers they were delivering, that's what they did. It was a colossal success as a policy. It was a policy in which uh, uh, the, the federal government to most Americans was the post office. The federal government, except for times of war when it was off fighting in Mexico or some other place, a civil war, except in times of war, the federal government to Americans in the, until the late 19th century was the post office. That's where they had post offices in every town. They built the roads that made it possible to distribute the newspapers, the post roads, and it accounted for what today would be roughly 
uh, a budget uh, subsidy by the federal government of roughly $45 billion in today's GDP. It was the subsidy during the 19th century the federal government gave. So the government's been involved in creating a free press consciously since the beginning of this country. It's one of the greatest contributions our country has made uh, to democratic theory and practice is really developing this. Uh, but that system changed it, when newspaper publishing became commercially viable. And that viability grew with the cities got much larger uh, and more dense by the end of the, by the second half of the uh, 19th century. And then advertising emerges with the development of the economy. And rather quickly, advertising becomes a huge source of uh, revenues for daily newspapers. And that become, some of them become very profitable. And then becomes a place where you can make a lot of money. Uh, and that evolves by the late 19th, early 20th century, where newspaper publishing becomes very profitable. And the postal subsidy disappears as being of much importance. Still important for magazines, still important for weekly papers, but daily papers take over their own distribution. And it becomes much more of a market-driven phenomenon altogether. Now, there's a long history I'm going to skip over uh, about what happens to journalism during that period. The important thing in the commercial phase, which is the phase most Americans are living today have any idea about, when you have big newspapers like the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times, and every city has one great paper because it usually is a monopoly. Uh, the largest cities might have two or three papers, but everywhere in the country otherwise, it just has one daily newspaper by the middle of the 20th century. Um, and that system, which is sort of, was a very profitable system. We have daily newspapers that serve their community, but there's only one paper in most towns, sometimes two, never more than two, unless you're in New York, Chicago, or maybe LA, but that was it. And um, they were very profitable. Suddenly newspaper publishing became one of the single most profitable industries in the entire economy. And again, it's 1% of the GDP. Uh, and you know, Warren Buffett, for example, said, uh, you know, he bought the greatest investor of our era by many accounts. He bought up a, a monopoly newspaper in Buffalo, the Buffalo News in the 70s. And he said, basically, you don't even have to do any work. It's just you, you control the entire market. So you get all the advertising money. He said, you could hire your idiot. You could place your idiot nephew as the publisher to run your paper because it takes no work to make money if you own a daily newspaper in that era throughout the 20th century. Now, during that era, and I came of age during that era, as I suspect your parents did and anyone over 40 or 50 did, and they know that era really well. Newspapers were ubiquitous, they, had, they were profitable, they were powerful. Uh, and I was a great critic of the type of journalism they produced because it had evolved from sort of a feisty partisan journalism to a very staid journalism uh, that didn't really draw people into public life, that depoliticized people as much as it politicized them. And I was a critic of how they used their resources. They had a lot of resources, but they didn't use them well. But that looks like an absolute golden age compared to what would quickly emerge. And the core problem for the collapse of the daily newspapers and local journalism in the United States came uh, first through excessive concentration, meaning monopoly markets, and then big chains and big media conglomerates gobbling up all the chains of newspapers. And they use their market power to cut back on resources for journalism. Why? The less they spend on journalism, the more it goes to the bottom line. So there was, even as they're hugely profitable in the 1980s and 90s, the percentage of the money going to journalism itself by these newspapers is declining. And you can see it in the data. But what's interesting is that uh, when the internet comes along, uh, it first, initially it doesn't have much effect on the journalism market, but then social media comes along 
2005, 2006, combined with the fact that the news, it becomes clear that the internet is a, you know, information vacuum machine. The protocol has been changed. So it's basically the world's greatest surveillance mechanism. And advertisers very quickly realize they can locate their target audience much better online than they can through daily newspapers. And daily newspapers depended on advertising, including classified for about 80% of their income, 80%. And that 80% very quickly begins to shrink as it gravitates, it migrates over to the internet. Because when you go, when an advertiser buys an ad in a daily newspaper, traditionally, even through to today, you buy an ad that goes in every copy of the paper and you have to pay for every copy of the paper that has the ad. And you, what happens is, depending on your product, anywhere from 50 to 95% of the people who see that ad aren't going to be in the market for your product. That's called waste. Uh, and so you're paying a lot of money to reach a lot of people who will never buy your product, no matter what your ad says. And that's not very smart advertising. You try to limit that. You try to just reach people who want your product. When you go online, you don't buy ads by going to a website, a newspaper website, say, I want to buy ads on your website. You go to Google, you go to um, Facebook, and you say, this is my product. These are my demographics. These are the people I want to hit. And guess what? They know exactly who those people are, everyone in the country. They can, they know, we know all the women 18 to 24 who might be in the market to buy a used car or, or whatever the product might be. And they also know where to find them online. They'll know where they are. They don't have, to, you don't have to say, we hope they come to this website to see our ad. You can buy an ad targeting a certain target group and wherever they are, they will get that ad right away. Uh, it won't be a month later that they buy the magazine, but it'll be that night if, if they place the ad. It's, it's, you know, for advertising, this is unbelievable. You can reach your target audience instantly, specifically, no waste hitting people who aren't interested in your product, and you can hit everyone. Uh, so that revolution sounds great for advertisers, sounds great for Google, sounds great for Facebook and AOL and all the other companies that are guiding the system. Uh, but it's not great for newspaper publishers. They lose 80% of their revenue and we're in a situation we're in now where instead of daily newspapers, including their digital branches, accounting for 1% of GDP, they account for less than one-tenth of 1%. And the figure is just falling off a cliff. Um, so that's the crisis we have. And so then the question is, how do we solve it? And the solution is we have to go back to the basics and understand that local journalism is what economists call a public good. It's something that society needs, but the market can't provide in sufficient quality or, or quantity, uh, like public education. Uh, education is a public good. If we had purely market-driven education and people had to pay, pull for, full, pay full freight for their kids to go to kindergarten through 12th grade, probably 75% of the country would be illiterate. I mean, you, there's no way people could afford that parents could afford that or afford to have children for that matter, if they were gonna send them to school. So it's a public good. It's understood it's a public interest that we have everyone educated and literate. That's important to be in a decent society um, in a democratic society. So that, that's why we do that. The same thing's true of journalism. Uh, left to the market, the market has already voted, thumbs down. We can't make money doing journalism anymore. Does that mean that we can't have journalism? No, it means we have to have a policy to give us local journalism. But it's got to be a smart policy. It's got to do the job well. It's got to provide enough money, but it can't allow the government to control who gets the money, pick the winners and losers. It can't allow the government to engage in any censorship or content regulation. That would violate 
I think, canons that are crucial in this country. Um, so how do we do that? And that's a long 20-minute way of leading up to our proposal to solve this problem called the Local Journalism Initiative. Uh, so any, you want me to clarify anything before Well, um, I, I do want to hear um, a little bit of, of a breakdown of exactly how the Local Journalism Initiative works. Um, but it does include offering lump sums to, to counties who the citizens will then vote on um, you know, what papers they want to subsidize. Um, is that, and you mentioned that in the past we've subsidized uh, the, the free press through things like uh, you know, cheaper access to uh, the postal system, but, but isn't that still slightly different than giving, um, than directly funding the, the papers themselves, um, does that have any uh, negative consequences that people should be concerned about? Well, on the first point, um, it's a different manner of funding times have changed. The framers that were key, they just wanted to have a press system. They weren't saying, well, we, we'll, we'll do the post office thing. And if it doesn't work, well, then we won't have a free press. We'll just be out of luck. No, they were gonna get it done. That was the way they got it done. But they weren't, they weren't saying, well, gee whiz, if we can't set up a press system, we're just going to call up the king of England and say, come on back, dude. We'll be part of the, you know, we don't want to be free. We don't want to govern ourselves. Tell us how to live. No, that was, so they were going to do it. That was the thing that got it done. And so pragmatically, we have to get it done now, too. So what do we need to do to get it done? What is the biggest need? Uh, and the biggest need for us today is, is not distribution. I mean, the Internet is phenomenal for that. And when we talk about newspapers, it's all digital. I mean, we're not talking about printing presses and ink and all that stuff. There might be a little bit of that, but very little. It's entirely digital. You use the term newspaper to reflect what's being done. It's, a, it's, a, it's producing journalism. It's a newsroom. It's serving its community. And so we have to come up with what is the biggest need and how can you do this in ways that are compatible with the great democratic traditions of this country. And the greatest need unquestionably is for human labor. Basically, no one can make a living doing journalism anymore. That's the core problem. The number of working paid journalists has plummeted in the last 30 years. Uh, the details are in the paper, uh, which you read. And, uh, you know, it's, just, it's not even debated. It's not like someone says, no, you got it wrong. It's great to be a journalist. Everyone gets it. It's a horrible time to be a journalist because that usually means you're an ex-journalist. And um, for young people who are studying journalism, it's, you know, it's, we're in, it's horrible. There's no jobs. They end up doing public relations or some sort of BS, but it's not journalism. Uh, it's not what they wanted to do. And um, we have a huge infrastructure of journalism schools and departments in this country that are all trying to figure out what do you do uh, now that there's train people who can't get paid to do what they do. So we've got to find a way to pay people to do journalism. And that's what this initiative tries to do. And the way we do it is we say it should be a federal program. There should be a set budget Based, based on a percentage of the GDP, so it's constant. And if the economy grows, as the population grows, as the if price levels change, it's factored into the gross domestic products actual amount. So you make it a constant out of the GDP, the gross domestic product. We put it at 0.15%, 0.15%, which is really much lower than it's been historically. But since you lose all the... Um, production and distribution costs disappear with the internet, you really can boil it down mostly to labor. I mean, that's the overwhelming amount. And so you, what we do is you say, you figure out what 0.15% of the GDP is for a year. 
And then the next year, we divide that by the entire population of the country. And it just so happens if you did that for last year, our, the population today would be roughly $100 per person, which makes it easier for the discussion we're about to have. That would mean that every county, you'd, whatever the population of a county is, it would get that population times $100 to be its budget for its local journalism initiative recipients. Okay, does that make sense? Sure. So where do you live now? Uh, I, I work remotely, so I kind of live wherever. Well, where were you physically right this second? This second, I'm in Chicago. Chicago, Cook County. What's the population of Cook County? It's a lot. Yeah, a few million. Like 5 million or something or 4 yeah. million. So 4 million times 100 would be uh, 400 million. That's a lot of money. You could have real journalism uh, if you had $400 million budget in Chicago. So how would Cook County go about this? Um, and Cook County is not a great example because most Americans don't live in a county like LA or Harris County in Texas where Houston is, or Cook County with an enormous population. The county I live in uh, has a population of 500,000, which is much more typical uh, in, in Wisconsin, Dane County. So we would have a budget of 50 million. But anyway, you get the idea. These are big budgets. It's yeah. a lot of money um, because the people who do this journalism, the, the conditions are they have to be nonprofits. They can't be, they aren't in public money bankroll someone getting rich or nothing like that. They have to be nonprofits. They can't get revenues from any other place. So they're not competing with people who want to sell advertising. They're not competing. They're not part of any commercial scam. All the money goes directly to this group. It's a nonprofit that does nothing but produce content in that county. Uh, and the, you, you can produce some content outside, but 75% of your workers and your payroll has to go to people living in that county. Uh, you have to produce content at least five days a week, original content, um, and it goes online immediately and it's available to everyone for free. So the government's, the public's gonna pay for it in advance, but once it's produced, everyone has access to it for free, instantly. It's, there's no second market, you don't have to pay for it again. That's, it, it's just in the public domain. Um, and these are groups can't be part of larger nonprofits. So it can't be a front group for the Boy Scouts or United Way or anything else. It's doing their stuff. It's purely people covering their communities. And the way it would work, and the, the organization, who would be the best federal organization to run this? The Postal Service. They've got physical buildings in every county in the nation. They're, they're the most the, the, diffuse federal agency by far. Uh, and they're looking for something to do in this era in which they've been you know, ransacked by the Trump administration. Uh, and they've got to come up with something. Well, why not go back to their roots? And it really wouldn't be that much work, but they would oversee the elections, which would be done almost exclusively online. Um, and uh, people would get, in any county, uh, would get three votes. You get to vote for three of the candidates on the ballot. Why three votes? Um, you, know, you have to be for three different media because we're not interested in having it just be where there's one winner or two winners. We want a diverse number of players. We want multiple news runs in every county. Uh, and so that's, uh, so, you know, we'd like to have 10 successful newsrooms in a Cook County or 15. And one way you ensure that is to give people three votes. There are lots of votes going out there. And the rule of thumb in a place like Cook County would be everyone that gets over one half of 1% of the vote qualifies. You've you got to get at least one vote out of 200 uh, to get 
money. So it can't be some scam where a lot of friends get together and say, hey, let's vote for each other and we'll split up the money. Nothing like that. Uh, you've got to at least show some support. You do some organizing in the community. Um, and no one can get more than 20%. Even if you're very popular and end up getting 70% of the vote, you can't get more than 20% of the budget. You just then the other 80, the, that money's going to spread among the other people who receive votes. That means in every county that qualifies, there's at minimum five well-funded uh, newsrooms competing. So that's basically the idea. There's an election every year, no, every three years, and it's a three-year term. So you have time to really get your stuff done. Uh, every county would have what we call a newsstand webpage for your cell phone or for the computer, where the headlines for each of the recipients of the money every day would be, the, the, all the changes to the most recent headlines would be there. So you could just go to Cook County and scan the page and you'd see everything that news media in Cook County is covering. You could get different ways of looking at it, but it would be an easy way to stay on top of living wherever county you are and really knowing what's going on, seeing what's happening, comparing uh, media. And then you can click and go to a specific website, of course, but there's an easy way to do that anywhere in the country to sort of participate. So that's the general idea. And that people would, um, there'd be no censorship of the content whatsoever. There'd be no one saying this is bad journalism. Fraud is the only thing that would be monitored to make sure people use the money uh, to produce content for free uh, for their county. Uh, that would basically be it. And uh, that's sort of the guts of it. I would say the response of most people who've been exposed to it is that it's a really good idea. Uh, in fact, a perfect idea. It's an ideal solution. It gives us well-paid-for, competitive, independent journalism without any government control, which is the objective. You don't want the government controlling it, but you actually have real journalism again. And it's not run by conglomerates trying to rape a community and cash in a lot of chips and take off. It's uh, the money stays there. Uh, the, the, the criticism of it, or concern more than criticism is, is it at all possible to get this thing passed through Congress? That's really, politically, isn't this absurdly naive to think that uh, our government would do something like this? And that's our issue to raise. There are a lot of legitimate issues, but that one is especially legitimate. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it seems, is it possible to try this on like a county level where, or a state level or something like that to sort of uh, say prove that it works? It's possible. The advantage of the federal government is, um, and the reason why the framers didn't say, hey, let's just let Rhode Island figure the hell out of this one, you know, or let Kentucky try to figure out how to have a free press. The reason why the framework said, this is the federal issue, this is the paramount federal issue, is that you've got to have it. You can't have like one state has it and another state's a bunch of morons. It doesn't have it. You know, you've got, everyone needs it. It's sort of a condition of being able to participate. And the federal government has access to much greater resources. It can run deficits. States can't do that. It, it has resources that boggle our mind. Um, and states don't as a rule. They're much more difficult financial situation. So it makes sense really that if you want to get it done right, if the sort of money we're talking about, it should be a federal project. And you know, it's funny how that works. We're talking about something that will cost 30, $35 billion annually uh, based on current size of the GDP. And it used to be, that was like really scary numbers for people, $35 billion. Oh, how can you do that, man? Whoa, that's, that's bad. And then we just signed, you know how big the last Pentagon bill that went through Congress was, Duncan? 
Uh, probably like 500 billion or something. Uh, well, give or take 250 billion. Yeah. Exactly. That raises the point. You, you, you picked a really huge number and it was two thirds of the actual budget. Um, we spend 700, it's almost $800 billion on um, uh, federal government does. Over half our discretionary spending goes to the military. There's no debate on it in our news media. None, zero. You wouldn't even know it was in the budget. They just announced, oh yeah, today Congress passed this $800 billion budget. Half of that money goes to military contractors. It goes to private companies who are represented almost exclusively by former generals lobbying people in Congress. It's so corrupt that in this last version, you know, the Republicans and Democrats don't debate what cuts to make. They're competing basically who can raise it to raise it more. Congress raised it, I think, 17 or $27 billion above what uh, the Pentagon asked for. They just threw in more money, 17 or 20. So, I mean, the point is that we've got resources and money that's there. It's just a matter of what our priorities are. I mean, it's not that we don't have the money. Um, you know, if we spent the same percentage of GDP on journalism today as, as we did in the 19th century, again, it would be much more than this. It'd be over two tenths of a percent, it'd be 46 billion. So this is uh, still lower than that, uh, what we did. And the other point I would raise about the, money, the reason why the money thing is so interesting, we have the money if we have the priority, but one of the tests that I've done in my research, and I'm not the only one, is we want to look at, you look at the countries, and you started this interview by talking about um, how the United States now is regarded in almost all the polls on democracy and studies as no longer being a democratic country. We're now called a, a flawed democracy. Uh, and this is done by not left-wing groups or partisan groups as much like the, the most famous surveys um, from The Economist magazine, which is a very pro-business business magazine, uh, free market magazine, uh, that every year publishes something called the Democracy Index. And they rank every country in the world from number one to number 300 and whatever it is, 40, uh, on how democratic they are. And they use very conventional political science criteria, elections, corruption, how easy it is to participate, how functional the government is, um, you know, basically what standard political science criteria. And the United States um, has fallen way down that list and is, is now I think in the 20s. Uh, it's not in the fully democratic category. But what's interesting when you look at the economists, listen again, the economist is a traditionally Republican conservative type publication. It's based in London, but it's never been on, in remotely sympathetic to anyone remotely close to what we call the, the left. They're not, they're not Bernie Sanders fans. Uh, and if you look at what the, but it's a great magazine, and it's a great study. Uh, if you look at what The Economist does, you, it's interesting. Let's look at the countries that are the most democratic year after year on The Economist. Now, we would expect by American thinking, well, those countries must not do anything with journalism. They must really stay clear of it because that would be, violate democracy. Those countries must really draw a line that government shall have nothing to do with journalism. So you go and you look at these countries, who's number one on the list most years? Norway, uh, Germany's up there, Germany's up there, that's interesting. Um, Japan is up there oftentimes, uh, Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands, uh, Canada. And what you find is that those are the countries that on a per capita basis spend the very most on journalism and public media of the countries in the world. 
the most democratic countries are spending the most money on journalism and public media. They're not ignoring the area, they're doing just the opposite. Now, some cynical Americans say, aha, that's why they're considered so democratic because the government is brainwashing the people in that country into thinking they're democratic with their propaganda. Well, that's just a legitimate concern. Maybe Norway has got some very sophisticated, you know, they're piping their propaganda in people's brains so they're walking around like zombies. I'm happy, I'm in a democracy because I read government media. Maybe that's the case. So what you do is you then look at another set of data from a group called Reporters Without Borders, which is a group which studies and ranks all the countries in the world and the press system in their, each country and how much um, critical work they can do toward their own country. How critical can they be of the power in their own country? Because that's the mark of a good domestic journalism. One of the key criteria you want is journalists who are gonna call out their government for screwing up and are gonna like challenge them and they expose them. And they rank all the countries on that list too. The United States, uh, by the way, now ranks 45th on that list out of all the countries in the world. We're way, we're down next to countries that are not considered democratic. That's where our press system is. Well, guess who tops the list of having the feistiest, most critical, hard-ass press systems in the world? Take a wild guess, Duncan. Who do you think it is? Uh, would it rhyme with uh, and uh... Yeah, yeah. The exact same countries that spend the most money on journalism have the most independent feisty, because that's what they spend the money on. In Norway, they subsidize a whole range of newspapers that wouldn't exist without public support. Same in Sweden, across the political spectrum. They're not just subsidizing whoever supports one key party. And I think the lesson here that's important is that, look, if the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or that dude in Turkey today, Erdogan, you know, if a dictator um, or dictatorship supports media and journalism, yeah, of course it's gonna be propaganda, duh. Now, Hitler wasn't supporting an independent press, <laughs> hardly. But if a democracy with the rule of law devotes itself to establishing a credible press system, it can do it. We did it for the first 120 years of our history. Our press system was a result of federal policy. These countries are all doing it now. They look at us and say, what are Americans smoking if they think they, they have to just let their press system go to seed uh, and let their country go right down the drain after it? And that's what we're doing. We're letting our press system go down the drain and we're gonna be swallowed up in the tide. Well, what about the fact that in America, we have this particular situation where trust in media is at such an all-time low that, I mean, I hear people say things like, oh, if we just had like a Walter Cronkite figure again, who at one point in time was the most trusted man in America. Um, but I think if you brought that guy back in today's conditions, he wouldn't be very well trusted. People would be on Twitter and Facebook and find things to criticize about him. And similarly, when we talk about the, the passage of this initiative, I can see a lot of people criticizing, um, you know, any, any local outlet that gets funds and attacking them and saying, OK, well, this county and, you know, this pro Trump county has these papers that put out stories that are just, uh, you know, pro Trump, let's say, and therefore they're they're illegitimate. They're not worthy of these funds. And similarly, people would say the same things about uh, Democratic counties where they're putting out, you know, pro uh, pro left or, you know, pro Democratic 
ideas and people would criticize. Well, let me stop you. Um, actually, I think instead of being a problem, that's a, that's it's, it doesn't quite work that way. Right now, if you go in areas, on the second point, we'll get to Walter Cronkite in a second. Uh, on that second point, this is guaranteed there's at least five voices in every county. And then there's some really lightly populated counties, you collect them, three or four counties together, they're really super rural. So you have enough people enough money to actually accommodate them. But say every county or county assemblage um, has at least five voices because of the 20% maximum rule. So you got five, at minimum, five newsrooms in, in that county. Now, currently, if you go in large parts of America, what are called news deserts, there are no newsrooms covering counties at all. I mean, it's a huge amount. going to no reporting at all. None. Uh, and where people get their news is from talk radio, the internet, cable TV, none of which has local anything, right? So it's all just national stuff. And it's not really very much journalism. You know, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN don't do much journalism. But the, you look at MSNBC and basically their shows are bringing on print journals, working with traditional print media covering stuff and being interviewed by the hosts uh, on, on MSNBC, on national stuff though, it's not local news. And so most people living in rural America are exposed to a pretty strict diet if they are interested in news of Mark Levin, talk radio, One America News, this sort of stuff, and no exposure to anything else. Now, in this model, um, there's, a very, there's a minority of people, perhaps, maybe a majority of people who don't participate at all in politics who live in these various places. And... Um, who with this program comes along and they could say, hey, I want to organize a newsroom, get some journals covering this community. And probably they can get 20% or what, some 2% of the vote and create an alternative and create a debate. There would be voices then for people who feel completely overlooked. Some of that money might go to media that, that you or I might not like or our friends might not like, but hey, it's democracy. You know, that you live with it. That, that's how the system works. If people want that, they can get that. But the point is, too, that in these counties, once we're, we're getting rid of the shyster element, most of the con artists and, and, and propagandists, conspiracy whack jobs, at the bottom, end of the day, besides being doing their thing, a lot of them are trying to get rich. And the whole thing is driven by shaking people down for money and contributions. This, that, that, that would not be allowed here. So they could, if you're into that game, you want to get rich off this thing, you wouldn't get in this game. This game, you have to, you get the money and you can have a nice income but you've got to actually produce content from, from your county every week, five times, you know, you've got to do something. And if you don't, you lose your money. You've got to, you have to do something. So I think that, I think it would open up even the most red county in rural Mississippi, Utah uh, would be opened up. And in the South where you have large African-American communities, uh, it would mean throughout all these counties, you'd have progressive media based just simply on the non-white participation. Uh, and, that's, and that's not fair to white people in the South. If you go to the South, there are a lot of uh, white people who aren't right wing or into that scene. And likewise, in the North, there are a lot of people living in uh, Northern enclaves like the one I'm in, Madison, Wisconsin, who think you know, that you know, they're, they're conservative, they don't like liberals, they don't like progressives, they, or at least they want other viewpoints and they don't get access to them sufficiently. Well, they certainly will have a chance, even in the most liberal community, 
there's going to be enough support to get at least a couple of voices out there that then will gain exposure to the whole community because they'll be on that newsstand page I was talking about. So everyone's going to know about them. That's going to, it's going to enliven the whole political culture in every county for that reason. And yeah, some people are going to get money who are utterly despicable, in my opinion. That's unavoidable. Uh, but, you know, the, those same people get elected to office. That's just, the, you know, you, that's the way it works. Then I just have to rev up my side to make them better, more compelling. I mean, that's how you do it in a democracy. You don't go out and buy a gun and shoot them, at least not until recently. So um, I think that that actually is a strength of the system, not a weakness, is that it's going to make it possible for diverse views to exist everywhere, uh, including counties and places that look like they lead one way or the other with no people either go that way or they're out of luck. Uh, but most importantly, what it's going to do in every county is create actual journalism. I mean, again, if you're living in most counties, there's no reporters. So now you finally have at least right people covering the school board, covering, you know, if there's a, a, some sort of issue about a corruption between a, a contractor and the city government, there'll be people actually responsible for covering it. And, and whoever gets that story first and best will get a lot of attention. And then their news medium will get the votes in the next election. And they'll be the winners as a result. Those we need these people to keep getting funded. That's how the system should work. Um, you know, I so that I don't think I'm not concerned about the fact that people who are obnoxious and that I detest and make me want to hurl chunks, I might get this money that goes with the territory. They're going to feel about that way about some of the people I might think are phenomenal. So um, the idea in the end run, in the end game, though, is that we can build a civil culture based on some sort of shared information, which we don't have now, um, so that there are legitimate debates, not just name calling and insult hurling, which is a lot of what we have today. And I think that's doable. If you go to countries that have a serious commitment to an independent free press, like the ones we've been talking about, like Norway, where I, my wife's Norwegian, um, I we go there twice a year for 35 years. You know, you talk to people across the political spectrum, they can have conversations with each other and debate issues and be married to each other or be friends. It's amazing. Uh, it's doable. But it's, it's based on the fact they've got real journalism that they can all fall back on and information. They can see the other side and read it and it's coherent. Uh, and I think if we have that, we could probably get a much higher more satisfactory level of political discussion and debate in this country. I mean, it couldn't get any worse. It could only get better. This would make it, I think, orders of magnitude better than what we've had. Now, as for Walter Cronkite, let me just go to that. Please. Uh, the idea that there was this glory day period before the internet. Now, Walter Cronkite was what's called a newsreader. Um, that means basically someone else writes the news and he would read it on a teleprompter uh, and that's what most of these people you see on the news do. They're reading a teleprompter. And um, so he, he's really, a, he, it's not that he himself, he just embodies basically a system. And so they're basically saying what we're being told by this uh, news service, we consider like something we can trust. Um, and I've been critical of the, that approach and that type of journalism, but the, the reason why it had credibility was that there were a lot of journalists doing stuff. There was, it wasn't like, you, it was just like today where uh, people on cable television just sort of say whatever comes to their head, they're trying to jack up ratings and there's no real accountability uh, in a lot of these programs. But, but, you know, there was a huge system of journalists nationally 
uh, and local journalists especially um, that the whole system drew from, that Walter Cronkite and CBS News drew from. And um, so there was more credibility of the system. That's why it was taken more seriously. People found it actually fairly accurate in a lot of issues. And compared to today, it was fairly accurate in a lot of issues. Professional journalism as practiced by CBS News and all the great, all the news media say of the post-war decades. Um, it had a lot of weaknesses at its best. Uh, the primary weakness was that it allowed elites in both political parties to set the terms of legitimate debate. And if they agreed on something, the news media would just accept it as the truth and not challenge it. And that is a real problem. That still goes on today, but then it was a real problem too, even at its best. It was very hard to, if the class, most of the wars we've gone into in the United States since the Second World War have been wars where both political parties were in favor of it, just like our defense budget we just talked about. Both political parties are part of the defense budget you know, process of raising it constantly. So it's never debated in the news media. It's just not an issue to be debated. But God forbid, suggest we get new toilet seats for people in public housing. It's going to cost $18,000. And you have people's heads explode. with like, oh, this is the worst thing that ever happened. Because that's an issue where you have one political party that will make it into an issue and say, hey, we should be debating this crucial issue. So even at its best, professional journalism tended to regard issues of significance and debate to be ones where the, the two, the, the major powers that be, Republican and Democrat, were debating an issue. If they were fighting over an issue, then they, you got really good coverage of it as a rule. So if they were debating a tax bill or a tariff or civil rights law, you got pretty good coverage in whatever side you're on, you get it. But if they were in concurrence on something like the United States has the right to invade any country it wants to, well, there's no debate on it. There's no challenging that in our news media. It still isn't today. Or much less. Um, the other, the, the, what was great about that type of journalism, though, uh, factoring what I just said, was that there was a commitment to factual accuracy, uh, which is, I think, what people really miss that um, you wouldn't lie, <laughs> basically, uh, consciously, as a rule. And reporters were held to it. And if you were a reporter, and I've been a reporter, and you, if you came in and, and you know, you tried to pass something off as fact, fact and the, and the editor looks at it, or readers called to this is back. You had to answer for it. That was, you know, not acceptable. And that was the strength of uh, professional journalism. And I think we need both those things. I mean, we need professional journalism, but we also need a journalism that simply won't be locked into thinking what people in power are debating is the only thing people outside of power are allowed to debate, because that's part of the problem we have right now. We have a lot of problems that people in power weren't talking about, and now we're, you know, like war and peace. Uh, the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're living with the consequences. Certainly. Um, and so, okay, so wrapping up here, for people who are listening, who are engaged by this idea, who uh, are persuaded by your case, if you want to learn more about it uh, or, uh, you know, somehow push it forward, where, where can they go? How can they? Well, you know, when we first, I've been working on this project uh, on media criticism and journalism issues for 40 years, 35 years. Uh, it's counting my grad school days and my days before that in media. Um, but I'd say that this issue of recreating journalism with public funds has been an issue that's been, we've been broaching now myself, my, the people I work with for about 15 years and maybe even a little longer, but in the last five years, 
the collapse of local journalism, which has always been the foundation of our journalism system, always, and without it, we see the result, has been so striking. And no one debates it. It's not like there's nothing to debate. No one's saying, no, it's really great, man. No, no one's saying that. Not anyone is saying that. Even uh, it's just, it's, a, it's so severe. And anyone who lives in a community knows they know so little about their community now. Um, almost every, everyone you talk to, they have no idea what's going on as hard as they might try, except for a handful of people who probably spend their whole time trying to figure stuff out. But for the average citizen, um, there's numbers less that there's a, there's a groundswell of support for the idea to do something. It's understood that the private enterprise has no interest in journalism anymore, especially at the local level. So that was the, that's been the heartening is the collapse is so bad that there's a lot of interest in, when we do talks and go around the country or do interviews. And we'd hoped in the 2020 presidential election that uh, we'd be able to get this plan, the local journalism initiative, far enough along that when the uh, infrastructure legislation or the stimulus ex, uh, legislation that the new administration put into place uh, right when it came into office and got passed by Congress could include this in it, that this would be part of the democratic infrastructure, having journalism again. Because people in Congress, they all know about the class of journalism because it used to be, as an aside, when a member of Congress went back to their district, there used to be journalists who would call them up. Or journalists, they'd run for office. They'd have a, as recently as 15 years ago, if you ran for office, you'd have a pack of journalists who follow you if you were a senator on the campaign trail. And now they're traveling by themselves with their briefcase. I mean, there's just like, you know, there, there's no journalists left or very few. So uh, the, the politicians know it. It's people know it. No, this is something we could get through then. And our hope was to get this through. One thing led to another. We weren't able to get it together in time. And I don't think it would have gotten through. Uh, so now what we're doing is we're, we're going to revisit Congress in 2022. We have a lot of supporters. Um, we hope to have hearings and draft legislation and then make it a big public issue. This is so it will. If this is going anywhere, everyone watching this podcast will hear a lot more about it in the next six months or year. Uh, but I would recommend that for the time being, I'd urge people to read the paper that we've been referring to because it really provides, it's based on hard research. It's not just me sitting there at a bar stool throwing some stuff out. Um, and it will answer a lot of the questions, have a lot of citations and data that will be, I think, of value um, and sort of get to know it and then share it with your friends, talk with them and um, you know, be prepared at some point Let's say you, you have a friend or a relative who's involved with the League of Women Voters or the American Civil Liberties Union. When the time comes, tell them to get involved. Uh, when the time comes, contact your member of Congress, both your uh, senators and your uh, representative, uh, and let them know, hey, do you want, this is an important issue, look into it. Now, I'll be clear, we're not so hung up on our solution, the local journalism initiative, that we say it's either this way or nothing else. If someone's got a better plan or another plan, we're we're, we're, we're open to considering it. We've spent a long time coming up with this one to address all sorts of issues, many of which you've raised. Um, and we're pretty happy that it's a solid plan, but you know, we're, we're open to continued debate on that front. Excellent. Uh, Robert, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Duncan. Good luck with your podcast. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you to Robert McChesney and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.